Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. I will open the broadcast today the same way I opened it on Friday and on Thursday of last week reading verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That opening verse, which is very significant, and we'll get into that the contents of that verse eventually, is the beginning of a short epistle, but a powerful epistle, packed full of sound doctrine, helpful explanation, helpful clarifications, a lot of things that we're going to be learning in this epistle as we get into it. But for right now, we're still dealing with background, and we are talking about how it was that Paul got to Thessalonica in the first place. Remember, Thessalonica is a large city in the Roman Empire, but in the peninsula of Greece. Rome, of course, had conquered Greece, the great glory days of Alexander the Great of Greece, who himself had conquered much of his world. They were in the past, and now Rome was ruling that part of the world. And so now Greece was no longer independent, but they were one of the conquered territories in the Roman Empire, and the largest city in Macedonia, the northern province of Greece, was Thessalonica. And that's where Paul established a church by the working of the Holy Spirit in hearts and lives, and that's where Paul wrote an epistle that we're going to study. In fact, he wrote two epistles, and I expect when we've completed, completed the five chapters of First Thessalonians, we will probably also want to complete the three chapters of Second Thessalonians. And so taking these two books together, you've got eight chapters, which is only half the size of First Corinthians, which is 16 chapters, and only a little more than the length of 2 Corinthians, which is 13 chapters. So you can see the relative size here, but I don't think that tells us the relative significance. 1 and 2 Thessalonians are very significant epistles in our New Testament. 
And so thank you for joining us on this Monday, January 29, and for your interest in the Word of God. And we will continue laying the background of our study for this epistle, doing so because there are radio listeners who help us financially to teach God's Word on this station. Well, on Friday, we got down to the place in Acts chapter 16 that explained how it was that Paul who had been ministering powerfully in Philippi, and a number of people had been saved, and a church is established there, that we might be qualified, might be correct, in saying was Paul's favorite church of all the churches he planted. The Bible doesn't say it was his favorite, but the language of the Philippian epistle, particularly in chapter 4, would cause us to at least consider that possibility. It was certainly one of his favorites, if not his favorite. But Paul wasn't able to stay there. I'm sure he wanted to continue to stay there and preach more and see more people saved and strengthen the church and help it to become established properly. But that was not possible because he he and Silas were thrown into jail. And then God sent an earthquake, opened the jail doors, shook the chains off of everybody, And yet nobody left. (laughs) Nobody escaped. And the jailer came in and fell down and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. What does that mean? Is the jailer's faith going to save other people in his household? No, that's not what it means. And later, the jailer and his household were baptized. What does that mean? Well, it means that like all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they obeyed the Lord in believer's baptism. That's what it means. Well, but it's his household. Doesn't that mean that there were some small children there? Nope. Clearly not. Read the passage carefully. I read it and explained it on the broadcast Friday. But it tells us that Paul preached to them for an extended time, and they all listened. And then it tells us that the jailer and his household were all baptized, that is, all of them who believed. So these are people old enough to believe the message they heard. That's what we know about his household. There is no evidence of a small child, certainly not an infant, but even a small child among them, because small children couldn't benefit from that sermon, and certainly Small children could not be identified as believers, but all of these who were baptized were. It says, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And, um, <laughs> and when he had brought, brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. All his household heard the gospel. All his household were baptized in response to the gospel because, we are told, all of his household believed the gospel. And that's the, that's the key point. The Bible does not teach baptism of infants. I'm sorry, dear friends, I have dear, dear, dear paedo-baptist friends that I cherish. Some of my dearest friends in the 
in Christ are of that variety. Some of my closest pastor friends who pastor other churches are believe that. I, 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 I understand that. And I, I, I understand it, though I don't accept it. I don't, don't follow that. But, dear friend, don't use this text to teach infant baptism. It's just not there. But now we move on. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let these men go. The magistrates sent the officers. The magistrates didn't come, and that's a key point here. Verse 36, So the keeper of the prison, that's the Philippian jailer who was saved and baptized. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, Apparently they didn't speak to Paul and Silas directly. They spoke to the to the jailer, and told him, let these men go. And the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned. There had been no trial. They hadn't been found guilty of anything. No evidence had been presented against them. No magist, no uh, judge had, had listened to the evidence and, and uh, pronounced them guilty of breaking a Roman law. They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, as we are. That's a vital point. In the Roman Empire, only a small percentage of all of the um, population were citizens. I was, I was struggling to find the right word there. <laughs> we usually refer to the people who live in a country as being citizens, at least most of them. In America, I'm sure 90, well, who knows what the percentage is, but I would say probably 97 or 98 percent of everybody who lives in America is an American citizen. Everybody who was born here is an American citizen. If there are people who've come here illegally and have not become citizens, then of course there are some who are not citizens, but citizenship is widespread. It is automatic for those who are born here, but not so in the Roman Empire. Roman citizenship was a rare commodity. It was a rare um, honor, a rare achievement. Those who were born in Rome or in a city that was considered a Roman colony, which would be just certain cities, would be Roman citizens. But nobody else would be unless they went through a pretty arduous process to become a Roman citizen, which was not easy to do if you were not born one. And so most of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire did not have the privileges of Roman citizenship, and Roman law made a sharp distinction between how citizens must be treated, what, what their rights were, their citizenship rights, and how others could be treated, or shall we say in many cases mistreated. And so Paul is taking advantage of that here. That's the point. Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. That's against the law. You can't beat, you can't whip, you can't scourge, you can't humiliate a Roman citizen unless 
there's been a trial and he's been proven guilty and that's the judgment that is levied against him. Then, of course, it's legal. But in this case, there was no trial. There was no proving that they had broken Roman law. But they were Roman citizens. If they were not citizens, as it was assumed that they were not, nobody thought to ask. Nobody was was expecting to have to treat them like citizens. Then you could do pretty much whatever you wanted to to them, but not to citizens. So Paul says, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. That, too, was illegal unless you were proven guilty of a crime. Now, do they put us out secretly? They beat us openly. They threw us into jail openly. Everybody could see it happening. Now they want to put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them, the magistrates, come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Asked them kindly, please, will you quietly go and not call attention to the fact that we have broken Roman law? They could be in real trouble for that. And so they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, the first convert. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now listen to this. I'm still reading chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is explaining how they came to Thessalonica. They passed up some other cities, and not every not every town, every village is, that along the way is mentioned here. Only two rather major cities, but not as large as Thessalonica. They passed up two of them on that hundred-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. And they came to Thessalonica because it was a large city, a significant city, a strategic city, and it had a synagogue, a Jewish population. And we'll get into that, Lord willing, tomorrow. Please join me then. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace. Peace.